Water Values podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Woodard and Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Waterworks Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black and Veatch, building a world of difference. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. And by 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. This is session 205. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey, and thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone had a safe and happy New Year celebration, a safe and happy holiday season, uh, and we are going to start 2022 off with a bang here. Alan Roberson, the Executive Director of the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, joins us to give his perspectives on big issues that are facing drinking water regulations around drinking water regulators, excuse me, around the country, um, and what they're kind of seeing for 2022. Alan just does a phenomenal job in this interview explaining the top issues, uh, and it's just uh, excellent and top-notch work by Alan on this one. And we also have Reese Tisdale returning for another Bluefield on Tap segment, so look forward to that as well. As per normal, we begin with a very hearty thank you to our sponsors for 2022, Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black and Veatch, CanDo, Mentor, APM, and 374 Water. It's great, uh, and I'm so proud that all, all of our 2021 sponsors have come back for 2022 And we added two more great and impactful companies to the sponsor family for 2022 that are supporting water education thought leadership in our sector. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you would, please. If you work for or with any of these great sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. That simple note of thanks and that that tiny little action you can take goes a long way to making those sponsors realize the true impact of their sponsorship. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. We greatly appreciate it and, of course, will help others find out about the podcast. Well, before we get to the interview with Alan, let's get good to our uh, Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Well, Reese, happy holidays. Welcome back for another BOT. How you doing? I am quite well. Happy holidays to you. It's, uh, it's been a good year, so happy to have made it this far. Yeah, and I guess this will be airing in uh, January, so happy New Year as well. Exactly. By the time this <laughs> by the time this hits the street, it'll be the night. It'll be New Year's Eve or the day of or New yeah. Year's Day. So look yeah. forward to it. Awesome. So uh, we've had a big year in water. A lot of stuff has gone on. Uh, kind of what what are your uh, big thoughts on uh, on twenty twenty one in water and what 
what's that kind of look like in 2022? Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, one, it's been a great year. And I know you've had a year in review podcast with some great guests. So I, for those, I encourage everybody to listen to that. But I think as we go into 2022, which is what I'm, we're all being forced to do at this point, if I think people have given up on 2021, the biggest questions, I mean, we were really getting three big question. Well, maybe one big question with a number of factors within that. And one is, you know, what's going to unfold with the infrastructure bill. We haven't talked about that. And there's a lot in there and a lot of clients are asking about that. So that'll be definitely in the first half of the year, if not the whole year, um, a lot's going to come out of that. Yeah. So, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The infrastructure bill and how that money is going to flow is, uh, top of mind, I think, for everyone in the water industry. Uh, what what are the, the big issues that you're seeing in how that money is going to be distributed? What are your clients asking you? I would say, that, look, I mean, at the end of the day, a big chunk of those dollars, and you and I have talked about this, is they're going to go through state revolving funds. So everybody's closely watching that. And that's their number of, there's the existing state revolving funds, and those programs, they're going to be additional dollars thrown into that. So that's going to be really important to watch. There's also going to be some extra dollars outside of that through other programs that are definitely going to be worth watching, whether it be loans or grants um, through different agencies. And look, I think it's right now we're looking at $55 billion. It's going to be spread out over five years. Um, and I think also within that, um, which is, I think, partly related to the guess for this episode is water quality is a big issue. It's clearly evident that things like lead, lead mitigation or remediation uh, in the pipe networks, um, but also uh, PFAS, you know, there's significant dollars going to both of those and understanding how that's going to be managed. I think one thing within the lead is it could be interesting to see how are they going to actually inventory all of these uh, uh, lead service lines. You know, there's a lot of talk about using digital or AI or other, you know, more advanced solutions rather than just, you know, digging them up and seeing what's there. So that's going to be really important. Um, that's, I'd say one is just the bill itself Two, I would say, um, the build America, um, build America bill by America. Um, and that really has to do with supply chain that looks like it's going to be more expansive. And I know that's a big concern for the hardware and equipment players, you know, depending on how you're, uh, it's not going to just be pipes. It could get further into like things like meters and other, other uh, hardware that is assembled, you know, in other parts of the world and brought in the U S. And so that could have a big impact on the supply chain. If anything, it's going to, strengthen an entire industry. I mean, Dave, you're a lawyer. Let's, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be a lot of lawyers out there. So I'd look at those two things in particular. What about the economic impact? Um, because there's going to be so much money flooding the, uh, water sector, you know, I, I, is the dollar going to go as far as it might otherwise, just because of, um, inflation, inflation demand is not going to be able to keep up. I mean, which will ratchet up prices. Do you have any thoughts on that? I would say, look, I mean, this came up yesterday in a conversation I had with someone, the demand is there without a doubt. I mean, just using the state revolving fund as a benchmark last year, we had 94 
billion dollars of requests to state revolving funds, which I think 17 to 20 billion were actually allocated. So there's demand for dollars out there. Um, what that means for inflation, without a doubt, um, you know, I think what we've seen is, you know, certain projects are going to be, but, you know, the more critical acute issues are going to be dealt with. But the one thing about this $55 billion it is spread out over five years. I mean, that's the goal as opposed to the ARRA, which was really almost exclusively focused on shovel ready projects. It was sort of, if anything, that deferred uh, some expenditures that they were all going to do and, and displace them with uh, government funding. Whereas in this case, it's the idea I think is to be more strategic um, and where those dollars need to go. So, you know, in, in, in your mind, how's everyone uh, reacting or feeling about about the bill and and the 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 flood of money that's going to be coming in. So I would say there are really two parts to that. One is it's surprisingly I may, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but there are a lot of complaints about the bill. One, it's not enough money. Um, it's going to be competitive. Uh, it needs to be more focused. Um, but I'd say this is a significant step that we haven't seen since 1976, quite honestly, as far as like total dollars going into the water sector as a whole. So I think I'm really optimistic about that. Um, I think people feel strongly about the water sector as a whole going into the year. I think just from Bluefield's perspective, it was a great year, whether it be investment, uh, real moves made towards the infrastructure such as bill or lead and PFAS that's happening. So water quality is at the forefront. Um, ESG measures and policies across the industrial uh, and corporate landscape is, is putting attention towards it. So I think we're really optimistic about where the market is going. Um, now the bigger question that you and I have discussed is, is this it or should it, (laughs) So, and I think that's, I don't want to be on the backside of this, the downer or the fear is that, are we going to sit back for another 40 years and say, ah, we just put all that $55 billion, 55 billion into the water sector. They should be fine. But I don't think that's the case. We need to keep this train going. Yeah. I I think there's going to be a lot of communication, a lot of uh, messaging to Congress uh, and the, uh, the administration that, water needs are ongoing and it's just not a one-time shot. Yeah. And I think, you know, sadly, the reason it's at the forefront of the news are things like climate, you know, we're seeing the droughts, we're seeing the winter storms, we're seeing the tornadoes. Um, and there are all these stresses that are happening. And if there's a lubricant to all of that, to life, I suspect, or that I think in it's water. Right. And that can, that can, uh, we have the solutions. I've always said that it's not a technology issue and it's not really a business model issue. It's really a matter of a will wanting to deal with it. Yeah. Very good. Well, Reese, I very much look forward to uh, talking with you on a monthly basis in 2022 and uh, hope you have a great one. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Dave, it's been great. Uh, great 21 and look forward to 22 and see you. Hopefully I plan on seeing you in April at the latest. (laughs) That'd be good. All right. We'll see you. All right. Take care. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research, this time with Reese Tisdale. Now it's on to our feature guest, Alan Roberson, the Executive Director of the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators. So let's get that water flowing. 
Well, Alan, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. I know I've been talking about it for a couple of years to have you on, but I finally got around uh, to, to extending a formal invite. So welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to the chatting a bit today. Yeah, I really can't wait to pick your brain on some of these topics. But uh, before we get to that, could you please provide us a little background on yourself and how you got interested in water? Sure. Um, I'm a classically trained civil engineer and started off uh, practicing, doing consulting work for about a decade uh, in a related but separate field. It was in uh, real estate land development, but down in Texas, uh, they would set up their own municipal utility districts. And so I designed and built a few uh, water and wastewater treatment plants for these subdivisions we were developing. And then uh, worked for a developer up in Northern Virginia for a while and, and kind of got in the water through the back door. I got caught up in the 1991 savings and loan bust and got laid off. And fortunately, landed a job at the Government Affairs Office of the American Water Works Association back in 1991. And so I had a 25-year career at AWA, uh, really enjoyed it there, met a ton of people in the, in the drinking water sector, uh, got a lot of knowledge, a lot of personal relationships. And for the last five years, I've been working at Astua uh, as the executive director, uh, running the small nonprofit for the state drinking water programs. Yeah. Could you tell us a little more about uh, ASDWA? I mean, what's it stand for and and kind of what its mission is, the who, what, you know, why, when, hows of, of it? Sure, sure. You know, ASDWA is the, the sort of the acronym for the Association of State Drinkwater Administrators. And that really is who we represent. We've got 57 members, uh, all 50 states, uh, five territories that have Navajo Nation and the District of Columbia. And so we're the voice of those state and territorial programs uh, here in D.C. And so we kind of have three major purposes, if I had to sort of uh, characterize it. One is that we look around at what's going on in the D.C. area, the news, and curate the news and then translate it and send out the most relevant news to our members. So they're not kind of inundated by all this information, but like, hey, here's something that's important. Uh, Here's what you need to know. And in the reverse, we take data and information from the states and then feed that into EPA, uh, feed that into staff on the Hill when they're debating drink water issues, and then also work with other federal agencies like USDA, uh, USGS, uh, CDC, other federal agencies that we uh, collaborate with. So it's that three roles, kind of the information going back and forth. And then the last one is really optimizing the opportunities of states to learn from each other. So we just had a conversation earlier today about the lead and copper revisions and the states are already trying to talk to each other and learn how they're going to navigate the next, you know, three or four or five years uh, while we're undergoing these major revisions to the rule and doing lead service line replacements. So again, you know, that's really our mission is to serve the state and territorial drinking water programs. Great. So you're from the government and you're here to help. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those, I mean, it's a little bit like that, you know, and that, yeah, you know, we, um, our, our office is right across the river from the district of Columbia. So, you know, in, in pre COVID days, we spent a lot of time, uh, in DC working at the EPA office. And then also again, providing education to the Hill staff about the needs of the drinking water program. So, yeah. Uh, hear from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was kidding when I, when I, I know. I know. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, so as well, how, how would you, 
how do you characterize it as being different from other trade organizations? You know, you mentioned you were with AWWA for 25 years. How do you, how do you see ASWA as different from other trade orgs? It's a great question. I mean, I see it differently in that, in that every member is a government entity. So everyone is a state agency. So, you know, that being said, you may think that they're um, all the same, but they're quite different. Uh, just even within the state agencies, a, a big chunk of them are with an environmental program, but about a third of them are with state health departments. And then we have a couple uh, where they actually combine the health department and the environment department. So, you know, how they're organized, how they operate, uh, they're all different. You know, so it's a it's a little bit of a of a kind of a universal mindset with a lot of differences, whereas AWA you know, we had the state regulators, uh, you had the water utilities, you got the consultants, you got the manufacturers, you've kind of got everybody. I always call it kind of the umbrella association. I'm still a member, still participate in some of their activities. Uh, and so, you know, we're very much a, a niche nonprofit that's really organized to help these drinking water programs do their job better. Yeah. I, and I, I think a trade association like Oswa is really important because it helps that that uh, communication and collaboration amongst the regulators. Right. So that the, the exactly. Exactly. Like I said, we had an earlier conversation today where everyone's trying to navigate, you know, uh, this new lead and copper rule. And I and there's going to be a ton more conversations just on that. But we're also working on, you know, PFAS and cybersecurity and source water protection and data management. We have all these other issues where that's a big part of our focus is helping the states help each other. Yeah, terrific. So, I mean, I think you you hit on you you got in right there to what I want to talk about next, and that is your priorities for twenty twenty two. What I think you went through a number of them just now, but could you kind of list off what your what the you know as was priority list is for twenty twenty two? Yeah, I always say we've got four for twenty twenty two. The first is the money, you know, the infrastructure bill funding and 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 ensuring that the states understand what's expected of them and how the money is going to flow through the states uh, to the systems. Uh, second is lead, lead and copper rule revisions, and now what's known as lead and copper rule improvements. Uh, PFAS, uh, clearly funding for both of those in the infrastructure bill. And the last sort of new wrinkle that we're grappling with is cybersecurity. So those are our four parties. That being said, there's a laundry list of other issues that we still have to contend with. So you still have, we still have questions come up on, you know, operator certification, source water protection, all these other issues that are in the safe drinking water act that we're still having to do work on, but we're trying to focus on those four for 22. Let's talk about the lead and copper rule and why that has such a high priority on Oswa's wish list. Yeah. I, I think there's a few reasons. One, I think it's, the current regulation, and I'm talking about, you can either talk about the 1991 lead and copper rule or the 2021 lead and copper rule revisions. It's really the most complex regulation that we have out there. You know, most of the other contaminants that are regulated, uh, you've got a number, you know, for atrazine, which is a commonly used herbicide. You know, you've got a number of three parts per billion. Uh, you monitor either quarterly or annually. You compare that number with, you know, the the standard and then you know if you're in compliance or not there are all these different ways you can have non-compliance with particularly lead and copper revisions you've got um, additional uh, 
treatment requirements, corrosion control treatment. You've got to be able to find and fix. You're changing how you're doing the sampling. You're going to have lead testing in schools and child care facilities. You've got all these ways that system can make a mistake and, and, and be in non-compliance. And then particularly now we're kind of in this lim- uh, transition stage. So we have this rule that became effective uh, last Thursday, December 16th, 2021, but the systems don't have to be in compliance until October 16th, 2024. And so we have this, you know, kind of three-year window where we'll be transitioning. The states will be writing uh, their primacy package, their regulations at the state level. And at the same time, the systems will have to be doing their inventories, doing their replacement plans, and particularly the replacement plans will feed into the whole infrastructure process. So it's this giant transition phase that we're just entering into and again, you know, we're excited about that because, frankly, we think that that our folks are the right folks to do that. That we're up to the challenge, and it's going to be a big challenge. Again, not just with lead and copper funding, but with the the PFAS funding. There's just a tremendous amount of money coming to these folks. Fifteen billion dollars over five years for inventories and replacements, and another four billion dollars for PFAS treatment plus an increase in the traditional SRF. So ton of money going through. And again, you now you've got this complicated rule and we're in this transition period. So just communicating clearly to everybody about what the states are going to be doing and what the systems are going to be doing. That's a challenge for right out of the gate in, in 2022. Yeah. What, so I, I am curious. Um, I think most folks in the water industry know that the, the lead and copper rule has gone through some, how we say permutations, you know, the Trump administration relaxed the rule, then the Biden administration, you know, you know, re-implemented or um, made it more stringent again. Um, I know utilities have struggled with uh, their response to the, to the ping pong back and forth of, of the lead and copper rule. How do the state administrators uh, for drinking water systems, how, how, how has the ping pong uh, match um, affected them? Well, I think sometimes they feel like they're they're having to hit the ball on both sides of the table. <laughs> you know that that yeah, it, it's it's confusing. And again, we just got out of this conversation earlier today, uh, where people are trying to sort that out, and, and some good ideas came up in our the chat function in our Teams meeting. And so I think that that everyone's trying to figure out the the uh, the path for their state and for the systems in their state over the next five years. And I think there'll be some similarities with me, some differences. So I think, you know, everyone is, is still concerned with um, where the current administration may land with the, the lead and copper oil improvements and trying to understand, you know, is there going to be a mandate for a certain percentage of a service lines to be replaced every year, whether or not you have an action level exceedance. So there's just a lot of nuances and how this is going to play out that again, uh, I got the impression that, you know, Everyone's just trying to think through the details, and we're, we're we uh, as with staff and, and our members, we're looking forward to working with EPA on this and figuring all this stuff out. And like I said, we're going to come out of the gate in January, uh, working hard to to make that happen. Yeah. Um, let's move on to. Uh, oh, well, before we move on, can I ask a question about you know how how does. Uh, how do the state administrators see the role between compliance and enforcement uh, when they're when they're looking at lead and copper rule in terms of 
you know, wh- where, where do they see their role? Is it, is it more helping folks comply or just, you know, publishing the rules and say, Hey, we'll, you know, here are the rules. We're going to come enforce it. Or, I think it's more the former that, that it really is about technical assistance. And whenever we talk amongst the states about compliance and enforcement, that's kind of like the last resort, you know, that the, the states have engineers on staff. They want to help out. They contract with the technical assistance providers. They, they want to provide a path and provide the training for the systems to go down that path to achieve compliance and, 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 and really, stay away from, if you can, using compliance as a, using enforcement as a compliance tool, that there are other ways to get to compliance. Um, It's just how the system responds varies all over the map. Some accept that assistance, uh, improve, and then enforcement's not necessary. You know, the, the, the term that I hear a lot is sort of, is return to compliance. How to get return to compliance. That's what everyone's shooting for at the state level. Got it. Got it. So let's go on to the second, um, the second priority you identified, and that's PFAS. Yeah. Uh, can you can you give us uh, Oswa's kind of you know rationale behind P- PFAS being high up on the priority list, even though it may be obvious to most of us? Yeah, a, a couple reasons. One is that it's it's similar to lead, and that it's pretty ubiquitous. You know that it 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 has impacts in, in every state, be it. Um, a large impact at a large system, or maybe it's a Air Force base that impacted a small system nearby, or even private wells, even though private wells are not regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act and the state agencies don't have the legal obligation to help out, they do because um, the communities need assistance. And so in some cases, the states will extend a public system to a community that might be impacted. So we've got this impacts in all the states. And then because of that, we're seeing a lot of states get mandates from their legislature or public pressure to develop their own state standards while we're waiting for EPA to set the agency standards. And so we've got half a dozen states that already have state level standards and another half a dozen that are working on them and maybe another half a dozen that are doing some sampling and maybe a little further uh, behind and even thinking about it. So there's a lot of activity going on at the state level, again, while we're waiting for EPA to move forward with the agency standard. Finally, the, the biggest uh, sort of the, the question that everyone's mind is that, you know, what's the right number that we're going to treat down to? And, and what PFAS are we going to try and remove? Is it just PFO and PFAS? Or is it those two and a a handful of long chain that are pretty similar? Or is it the 29 PFAS that are in the final fifth unregulated contaminant monitoring rule? So there's a lot of uncertainties, again, that that we're trying to provide some assistance to states to sort through. We just did a toolkit uh, in November on... uh, a white paper that provided information to states that are setting their own standards, what the ones that are thinking about it can learn from the ones that have already gone through the process. Because with all the different components of a rulemaking, uh, a lot of states are having to do it for the first time and need to walk through that process of health effects, analytical methods, occurrence, treatment, 
and benefit cost analysis. And so this white paper provides information that will help. And then I think down the road, we're going to need to do more information on, on treatment down the very low levels. How exactly the mechanics of that work. Again, being an engineer by training, I'm always interested in, it's okay, if you're going to try and treat down to three parts per trillion, uh, how do you do that? How do you know when the switch your absorbers or when to change the media. There are a lot of um, engineering construction and, and, and operational issues I think we're going to have to try and resolve in treating down very low levels. And I think ASTO will play a role because the states ultimately have to review and approve uh, the treatment studies for these PFAS treatment, as well as the plans and specifications for the final treatment. Yeah. What roles ASTO playing uh, in PFAS in, in the development of a regulation? I mean, I know EPA will work on that, but I mean, what what role are you playing uh, in in collaboration with EPA? Well, we always play the role of uh, a partner with EPA and, and and kind of focus on what are going to be the state implementation issues. So, for example, and you know, I've said this before, I'm an engineer by training, so I don't really dig into the health effects information and and how EPA conducts that analysis and where they land on a you know, appropriate reference dose. That's really the agency's expertise. And I'm fine with doing that. What I look at and what our members look at is implementation. How's this going to work? Um, how often are you going to test? Uh, are you going to have those test results be a, a single sample or some kind of average? That would depend on what your health effect endpoint is. Uh, how are you going to manage the data? Uh, you know, how is there's a computer package that everyone uses, the acronym is SIDWIS, the Safe Drinking Water Information System. How is that system going to be modified to take into account this information? So it's really more the details on the implementation that we partner with EPA on. Got it. Got it. Um, let's move on to the 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 other um, remaining priority, or at least I've kind of saved the money for the last. So let's Let's just talk about the next item on your priority list, which is cybersecurity. Can you talk about how how Oswa or Aswa looks at cybersecurity? Yeah, that that's a challenging one for us because you know in the in the when you get down to the bottom line, cybersecurity is the responsibility of the water system. So you know they're the ones that have to understand what they have and what they don't have. But yet the state's, you know, the state role is uh, oversight and compliance. So compliance is not really on the table for cybersecurity because there's not a, a regulation or a standard, but oversight. And if there's a problem at a system, ransomware, whatever it might be, the state's going to get a phone call. So the struggle is really trying to figure out what is appropriate, what is the appropriate state's role, the, 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 folks that work with the systems, the ones that do the technical assistance, or the ones that do the inspections called sanitary surveys, they're not really cybersecurity experts. It's a very specialized field. And so the people that do these inspections, they understand how to look at monitoring data. They understand how to look at a tank or a pump and say, hey, everything's okay, or need to fix this. But you know, you try and go in and ask a system, well, do you have a password management system? The system says, yes, I do. And then what? Do you, do you look at what their system is? 
Do you look at, at their log on changing the password? Do you verify that what's written in that log is correct, that they just didn't write stuff down and haven't changed any kind of password? So anytime you go in and, and try and ask a question, the resultant actions get complicated and the state, it's not the state folks expertise. So we're trying to figure out a role. Um, we, we have a lot of conversations with EPA's water security division. Uh, one of the other issues we run into is that there will be alert to come out of the federal government from a part of DHS that's known as uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Administration. Good information, but it's written at a very detailed kind of technical jargon level. And so what we're trying to figure out is a way we can translate that so that our states can talk to their systems and say, hey, you need to be aware of this potential vulnerability here's some actions you can take. So we haven't quite worked at all the kinks on how to um, adequately translate the information from the federal government to the states to the water system. More to come on that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, uh, where I am in Indiana, if you want to get a uh, state revolving fund loan, you have to have a cybersecurity plan. And, and you know, I think there's, you know, I, I don't want to speak out of school, but it just seems like... Uh, there's not a lot of there's there's not a lot of guidance in the statute at least as to what that cyber cybersecurity plan needs to you know entail. Yeah, and I think that what you'll find is that the big systems, the very large cities, well funded, well capitalized, they'll have pretty good cybersecurity that that they'll have programs and they'll do it's a, it's the kind of medium the small towns that are the issue. You know, a town of <clears throat> you know, 25,000 people, you've got a qualified operator. He knows what he's doing, but you know, he, he's a good operator. He's a good plan operator, or knows the distribution system. You get into cybersecurity, that's just not his expertise. And your, your point is, is well taken, you know, to what level does he need to have? And, and even, I don't know that beyond, you know, it'd be nice if everyone had two factor authentication, just like when you log into the bank, they send a, a, a text to your phone, mm -hmm. you know, and, and put the code in that, that should be sort of a standard for any kind of remote access. Uh, I'd like to think that everybody that has remote access has that, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case out there. Right. Right. Uh, so let's, let's move on to the funding because the infrastructure investment and jobs act was recently passed. Uh, everyone is getting ready for how this money is going to be start, you know, when the tap's going to turn on next year and, you know, why, why is the, the money that's going to start flowing, uh, to these utilities, you know, why is that a priority for the drinking water administrators, you know, association? Sure. Uh, it, it's a priority because the money is going to come through the States. So um, every state has a revolving fund and um, in some states, they do it from start to finish. And in some states, and you, you said you're from Indiana, they have like a, a, the Indiana Finance Authority, but the state drinking water program is the one that, that um, develops the process, develops, okay, here's the information we need in a preliminary injury report. Here's the information we need in the application. Here's our intended use plans where we rank all the projects in order of priority, and they'll collaborate with the, the finance authority in um, selecting the projects and 
and the finance authority will offer the loan and, and actually uh, do the closing and, and pass on the money. So the states have a role, even when there's a separate finance authority, in kind of guiding the finance authority to the most important projects. And so with this money coming in, and it's essentially a tripling of the amount of fund coming in over a five, each year for a five-year window, there's going to be a tremendous volume of, of applications. Again, the, the traditional SRF is getting more money. There's money for the lead service line inventories and replacements, and then another pot of money for PFAS treatment. So you're going to have all these applications and preliminary engineering reports for all these projects that our members are going to have to manage. And there'll be political and public pressure to get this money out the door and get these improvements constructed. And so it's important that that everyone's on the same page. And when I mean everyone, it's it's uh, the states, uh, both if there's two state agencies and then their EPA cohorts, both at the headquarters here in DC and the regions on how this money is gonna pass through and how the reporting is gonna go back and forth uh, on each project as, as we go through the next five years. So it's a big priority. We've had a lot of great discussions already with EPA on the implementation and uh, they set up a state EPA work group that's getting into a lot of the weeds. And so uh, looking forward to see how that group sorts everything out and the, the money starts to flow. Yeah. Amen. Um, Joe Manchin came out earlier this week, Senator Manchin, and uh, indicated that uh, Build Back Better's dead. It's going to he's not going to vote in favor of it. He can't support the bill. Uh, you know, do, do, does the ASWA have any perspective on that, given, you know, your your stance on the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act? Yeah, th- there was a, a couple sections. There were a few sections in there that would provide some additional funding for some specific drinking water issues. Uh, but that's another one that's sort of on the back burner. I'm just really letting that one uh, percolate on its own and, and we'll see how it sorts out. Uh, again, there'll be some additional money, but from our members' perspective, this $43 billion that's coming through for water and wastewater is going to keep everyone pretty busy for the next five years. So if the other money comes through, uh, our members will manage it accordingly. But at this point, I think we're pretty comfortable uh, kind of focusing on the, the effort that we have in hand. Awesome. Well, Alan, you've been you've been absolutely terrific kind of walking us through who the uh, Association of State Drinking Water Administrators is and, uh, you know, why it's important and kind of your priority list. Uh, wh- what would your leave behind message be? My leave behind is that I think we're at a once in a lifetime opportunity in drinking water. We've got all these challenging issues in front of us, but at the same time, we have a lot of money coming at at, at us. And I think that to me, given that I've worked in the field for over 30 years, is, is what keeps me personally interested. And I hope that I can, you know, be a player or have a role in ensuring that that our members and the water systems are able to meet this once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. Terrific. Well, Alan, I really appreciate you spending some time with me, especially around the holidays. I know uh, every every you know minute is precious around that time. So thank you so much for your time. And it's been great uh, having you on. For those who want to find out more about you, more about the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, where can they go to get that information? Well, we've got a good website, www.asdwa.org. I'm also pretty active on Twitter. Uh, it's at Alan the Waterman. 
just kind of came up with something that, that, <laughs> that I thought kind of had a little bit of rhyme to it. And it, I, I do post pretty regular cause there's a lot going on. And so those are two ways to get more information. Great. Well, Alan, again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all your work. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Bye. Just an absolutely awesome job by Alan explaining the important role that the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, Administrators plays in a number of our drinking water regulations, as well as helping our state drinking water regulators interface with each other and share information about best, best practices and the like. It's just super information. I think it's really important uh, work that Alan and his team are doing over there. So thank you, Alan. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time to explain and, and share with us uh, your mission and the work that you're doing over at Oswa. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about uh, the interview with Alan. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast. Click the first link that comes up. Uh, you can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page that I mentioned earlier uh, as well. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope everyone out there has had a terrific holiday and a terrific start to 2022. And I want to give a huge thank you again to our sponsors. Sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for 2022 are Woodard and Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black and Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, and 374 Water. Just a terrific cadre of companies there. I uh, really appreciate their support, and this show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders providing that support. And again, thank you for your support and for your listening I can't tell you how good it feels to be part of the water industry with such caring and dedicated people that I get to work with or interact with every day. I look forward to having a great year with you, and we'll catch you next time. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.